Good morning, church. The love and the presence of God are strong in this place this morning. Could you turn me up just a tad there? Thank you. I'm going to read two scripture passages together this morning. The first one is from the Gospel of Luke, carrying on. And um, if you're visiting or haven't been here in a while, we're jumping in in the middle of a rather intense story, the Passion Week, the week where Jesus Christ lays down his life for us. And last week we got right up to the point where he was about to be taken to be crucified. He had been tried, betrayed, tried, tortured. And so we're jumping in right in the middle. And I'm going to read that passage first, and then I'm going to turn to Isaiah 53 and read that very well-known prophecy about Jesus that was written many hundreds of years before he was even born that speaks to us of, who, again, who he is as the Lamb of God and what he was accomplishing for us in his suffering and death. So from Luke chapter 22, beginning at uh, verse 26. Sorry to do this to you, but I just changed my mind. I'm going to read Isaiah first. So you can just hold Luke in your Bible and let me read Isaiah to you, okay? Just, just hold that spot for Luke. This passage is called The Suffering and Glory of the Servant. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there are many who were appalled at him, His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see and what they have not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep 
before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. From Luke 22. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you'll say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us! And to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said? Since you're under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Word of God. Amen. Thanks be to God. About ten years and six weeks ago was a day of horrors for the Amish in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Some of you will remember uh, it was October the 2nd, 2006, when a man who was not Amish by the name of Charles, Charlie Roberts, he was a milk truck driver who um, all the Amish knew he delivered milk to them. He left his wife and his three daughters suicide notes and he loaded up his truck and he drove over to a one-room schoolhouse and he entered that schoolhouse and he forced out all the men and the boys and the teacher and kept 10 girls. And uh, one of the 
people who got out managed to run to a nearby farm and called the authorities. And so it was not very long till the authorities were on the scene. But by the time that they got there, he had already barred the entrance of the place and he had bound and tied all ten of these girls. And so they had a brief standoff um, in which the police were trying to negotiate with him. And um, during that time, it's reported that the oldest two girls, 13 and 11-year-old sisters, were actually begging him, shoot shoot us first, please shoot us first, um, because they believed that that would spare the lives of some of the other girls. And so the short of it is that he did, that he started with a 13-year-old and he shot her, and he, in in less than a minute, emptied his guns on them and on himself. And by the time the police heard the first shot and managed to break through and get in less than a minute later, the schoolroom was covered in blood. And five of those girls died. Five of them were severely injured. And he himself was dead. And the thing that struck the nation and that stood out in the week that followed was that these Amish families who were racked with grief and with pain and with horror over what had come upon their families were not angry. They expressed no anger. In fact, it was reported that the grandfather of one of the victims was heard on the day that it happened, just hours later, speaking to his grandchildren saying, We must not hold anger in our hearts. We cannot view this man through the lens of anger and hatred. Also that same afternoon, Amish people who lived in the community went over to the house of the wife of the killer. And they comforted the wife. And they extended forgiveness to her just hours after it happened. Family members of the, of the people who had been killed went to the parents of the killer who lived also in the community. And it is reported that one of the Amish men held the father of the killer in his arms as that father sobbed for an hour. This man who, who had just lost precious relatives held the father of the killer as he sobbed. Later that week, five days after the killing, the family of the killer had a private funeral service and a burial. And when they arrived at the grave site for the burial, out from the side of the cemetery, over the crest of a hill, in a semicircle, came 40 Amish people, half of whom were parents and siblings of the girls that had just been killed, some of the who had buried their own daughters the day before. And they came to the mother and the father and the wife and the daughters and they hugged them and they embraced them and they were one with them in their grief. And the world looked on and the world said, this is stupid, you can't do this. This is evil, you cannot forgive evil like that. The world protested. The world said, you cannot do that. It's like blessing this evil. You cannot. The world was divided. 
But what the world did not recognize was that as beautiful as these Amish people were being, they were just following in the footsteps of the Jesus that they love. They were just following the Jesus that they knew, who on the way to his own death, walking the streets of Jerusalem with his face marred beyond recognition, with his body black and blue, and with shreds of skin hanging off his back, as Pastor Gina explained to us last week from that whipping, with his back open and exposed, is not thinking about himself. He's saying, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Don't weep for me. I've been beat up once, and the only thing I could think about was myself and how afraid I was and angry. Who is being treated this way says, don't weep for me. I'm fine. I'm all right. Don't weep for me. What kind of love is this that on the way to his own murder, already torn to shreds, says, don't think about me. Don't weep for me. Weep for those upon whom judgment's coming. And he speaks about that judgment we've talked about that comes against Jerusalem because they reject Jesus. He's looking down the road. He says, weep for them. That's going to be horrible. This isn't horrible? Yeah, that's going to be... Think about them. Even on the way to his own death, he is completely selfish and full of love and thinking about others. Weep for them. And so they take him and they follow him. And I'm sure they didn't listen. I'm sure they're still weeping and they're still wailing. And the text says they nail him. They nail him. Bloody, beaten, bruised, shredded. And he doesn't say anything. He just goes... He's got all the power in the world. But he gives his hands. Gives his hands. And they're nailing him. And he says the most beautiful words ever spoken across the centuries by anyone. Father, forgive them. For they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. What kind of love is this? Can you imagine being one of the soldiers? Hardened, tough, rough, nailing him. And hearing those words? What does it do to your soul to hear the one that you are nailing Say to you, Father, forgive him, forgive them. And, and the leaders who are responsible for his death and who are nearby and who are sneering and judging and looking down, do any of their hearts get pricked or pierced? What does it do to them to hear these words? Father, forgive them. 
Can you imagine Jesus' mother and his disciples, male and female, that are looking on? They're wailing, they're weeping, they're watching, they're wishing it weren't happening. And they hear these words. Oh, Jesus. This is the Jesus we've known. This is the Jesus we've loved. This is the Jesus we've followed. It's the same Jesus acting the same way, full of love, thinking of others. Father, forgive them. Father, release them. And he's not asking Father to do something that Father doesn't want to do. It's not like he's trying to convince the Father. He's not yelling it loud like he's got to get God's attention. He's asking the Father to do the very thing that the Father wants to do. He's speaking the Father's heart. When he says, Father, forgive them, it's the Father in him. He says, I and the Father are one. The Father sent him to be in this spot. And he comes and he speaks the Father's heart. Father, I know you want to forgive them. Father, I know you don't want to hold these things against them. I know you want to bring release I know you want to draw these soldiers and these high priests and everyone sitting here. I know you want them all to know you. So, Father, forgive them. What kind of love is this that looks on at spitters and mockers and abuse and scorning and hatred and says, Father, Forgive them. And I just can't help but wonder if it was that love that pricked the heart of the man on one side of him. But before we get to that, Jesus has got more to get through. He's got another desert experience. Because just like at the beginning of his ministry, when he had to get sent by the Spirit into the desert, and three times he was asked, if you are the Son of God, then, and the assumption was that he was, three times he has to hear it again on the cross, if you're the Son of God, if you're the Son of, if you're the Messiah, if you're the one with all the power, save yourself and us. And he is. He is. But doing that means that he stays silent. That he continues to take it. That he absorbs what's coming at him. And is that the thing that gets through to the thief on the one side, when one thief starts to say, ridicule him, and and echo those same words about, hey, if you're the Messiah, you know, do something. And this other thief, murderer, rebel, looks on This Jesus hanging here, not saying anything, not defending himself, just pouring out love and forgiveness. 
And he sees enough to recognize that there is something exceedingly special at work here right now. And he doesn't have any idea what that is. He just knows Jesus is set apart. He's unique. And so he reaches out with this little grain of faith, which actually is quite astounding. And he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. That's pretty bold. That's a pretty bold request. He doesn't have anything he can bring to Jesus. He has no merit for asking Jesus to remember him. He's got nothing to offer Jesus. All he has is this little grain, it's just this tiny little seed, this little grain of faith that, that this love that's flowing from Jesus, this forgiveness, it's real. And whoever he is, King of the Jews or whoever he is, I want some of that. I want what's coming out from this one. I want that forgiveness. I want, if he's a king, I want to be with him. And so he reaches out to him with nothing to offer him. That's a vulnerable position. He just reaches out and says, remember me? Remember me. It's kind of vague. He's just grasping. He doesn't know how Jesus is going to respond. He knows he's not worthy of any response. Just remember me. And what happens? Jesus doesn't just say, I'll remember you. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. And that word paradise means garden. And what it's referring to is that kings in that time would have their own private garden in their estate. And it was the most special of honors to be invited to come with the king into his private garden and to have a walk with the king and a talk with the king. And anybody who has a little bit of familiarity with the Bible story might know that there was a time in the beginning when we were in a garden with the Lord and it was good and it was safe and it was intimate and there was no sin And Jesus is saying to this man, today you are going to walk with me in a garden. Today you and I are going to be intimate together. Today you are going to share friendship with me. Today we are going to be one. We're going to be together. Really? But I don't have anything to offer you, Jesus. Except that little grain of faith. And Luke wants us to see. And Jesus wants us to see. That this is the paradigm for coming to Jesus. This is faith. Just one little seed is all that's needed. And Jesus gives it all to him. And Luke wants us to see that none of us are really any different than that thief 
on the cross. We don't have anything to offer Jesus when we come to him. This man was a murderer, a rebel, a wicked man. And this man has, doesn't do anything for the kingdom of God on earth. He didn't do anything righteous. He didn't go to church. He didn't get his life cleaned up. He didn't do anything. All he did is say, Jesus, remember me. And Jesus welcomes him into the grace and the love and the forgiveness of God the Father. Today you're going to be with me in a garden in paradise. This is incredible. The only story that um, I've heard many stories of grace, but the only story for me that comes close to picturing the beauty and the depth of what is happening here is a story uh, that some of you have heard before. It's a story of um, John Gibson, I think is his last name. He's a, a bridge operator in Mississippi in the 1930s, and it's his job to press that little um, button or lever or whatever it is that raises the bridge over the Mississippi so the boats can come and go and the trains can go over the bridge. You know that you know that job? Yeah. And so one day in 1937, he decided he was going to take his son Greg with him to work so that Greg, could, who was eight years old, could see what daddy did at work every day. And so Greg came in to work with him and they spent the whole morning lifting the bridge and lowering the bridge and lifting the bridge and lowering the bridge. And Greg just thought it was the most amazing thing in the world that daddy had all this you know, control and power over what happened and uh, beautiful time together. And then they decided that because there were no trains coming for a while that they would go have lunch out on a catwalk. And so they went out on a catwalk together in the sun and they had just a beautiful time of lunch and um, talking. And then all of a sudden, um, John heard the shrieking of a distant train whistle and he realized immediately that it was the Memphis Express coming with 400 passengers and he looked at his watch and he realized I've got just enough time to get back up to the control room and lower that bridge and so he said to his son you just stay right here while dad goes up to the control room and uh, I'm going to I'm going to lower the bridge and so he ran up to the control room fast as he could and he got up there and as was his custom, he looked one way down the river to make sure there's no boats coming. And then he looked the other way down the river to make sure there was no boats coming. And then he looked down at the bridge. And when he looked down, what he saw caused his stomach to go up into his throat. Because what he saw was that his little boy had not stayed out there, but his boy had tried to follow him up. And he'd fallen into the gearbox and he'd gotten stuck in there. And John knew in an instant that his choice was either I crush my son or I let these 400 passengers on the Memphis Express go off the bridge to their death. And so he did what he knew he had to do and he buried his head in his arm and he pushed forward that giant lever and he crushed his son. And as he took his head out of his arm, it's a true story. He watched 400 passengers on the Memphis Express fly by, totally and completely unaware of what he'd just done. 
he had to make that decision in two seconds. God the Father, from all eternity, decided he was going to give to be crushed Jesus Christ. Greg, the eight-year-old boy, did not have a choice. He was caught in the gearbox. Didn't have a choice. Jesus Christ was not caught in the gears of the Roman Empire and the Jewish leaders. He was not caught. He did not fall in. He walked in, willingly walked in to that gearbox that he might be crushed, that he might remove everything, everything that separates each of us from God, that we might be completely cleansed, completely forgiven, completely restored to garden fellowship with our Father, completely filled with the love of God the Father, completely forgiven. And the Lord wants to minister that forgiveness to our hearts this morning. And so maybe you're here this morning and you're just beginning to learn about Jesus Christ. And maybe the idea of a kind of forgiveness that would call you to, like the Amish, forgive someone who's done something horrible to you, Maybe that's something that's pretty difficult for you to swallow at this point. If that's you, the Lord calls you not to start there, but just to start by opening your heart to receive from him, just to receive his forgiveness. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been following Jesus for some time. You've been growing deeper with the Lord Jesus, but there is still areas of maybe unresolved guilt in your heart or your life. Maybe you think to situations in your past and you still feel a measure of guilt or maybe there's something in the present that's hindering you. If that's you this morning, the Lord invites you to open up your heart and just to receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers from the cross. Maybe you're here this morning and you have been walking with Jesus for many, many years Maybe you, you live a life that is mostly loving union with Jesus. And yet, you struggle sometimes to feel completely forgiven. Maybe you're struggling with extending Jesus' forgiveness to others around you. Maybe it's people in your family or close to you that are hurting you. If that's you this morning, Jesus invites you to open your heart and to let him fill you more fully with the forgiveness and the love of Father God that that love might flow through you. So I'm going to stop talking and Laurel's going to come up and play the keyboard quietly and we're just going to invite the Holy Spirit to minister to us. Wherever we are, the Lord wants the love of Jesus from, from that he spoke on the cross just to, just to minister to our hearts. And I'm just going to invite, I'm just going to open in prayer and just let the Lord love on us. He's present with us this morning and he wants to fill, fill, fill with the, 
the knowledge of this complete forgiveness, this overwhelming love. So let's, Lord, why don't you start playing in, um, Lord, Lord, we do open up our hearts to you. It's just incredible. We hear this story of John Gibson and his son, and we think, I, I could never do that. I could never do that with my own children. And yet you, you did that. You did it not just for the world, but you did it for me. And you did it for me personally. And you didn't just do it so I could come, come into your family with a, a burst of flame over receiving your love, but you want me to live in that love all my life long. You want me to live my whole life, all my waking hours, in union with this amazing love that you have. Lord, would you come and just minister your forgiveness and your love wherever we need it right now. Lord, wherever there's anything that's standing in the way, would you highlight those things? If there's people that we need to forgive or places where you want to minister forgiveness to us, Lord, come and speak right now.